Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Michael Trout, who will explore what we can learn from the early days of infant parent psychotherapy. Michael Trout founded the Infant Parent Institute, a private clinical practice, consultation, and training facility dedicated to understanding the relationship between early social experiences and how our lives form. Now retired, Mr. Trout remains active as an author and regular speaker on early development and problems of attachment. This episode is the second of a 12-part series with Michael Trout, so be sure to tune in over the following weeks for additional episodes. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckbolter. All right. So, um, there, there was not a real agenda. There was not a big, you know, this is a class, and these are, you know, what you read, and this is how you do this, and and all of that. It was, it was definitely more observing and discussing and being curious and wondering and did some kind of intervention eventually emerge or what 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 started to happen as you guys were working together longer did they give us the answer finally (laughs) (laughs) you know as you asked the question it occurs to me that more was going on a great deal more was going on than just reflecting on the cases. Because, for example, as we students would get agitated, uh, impatient, demanding of an answer, tell me what to do kind of answer, there would be interpretations that would never feel invasive and never feel psychoanalytic, but would feel um, that would stop us in our tracks. That would make us take note, for example, that this this impatience we're feeling really was spelled helplessness, a fear of our own helplessness, that we would be in the home and a mom or a dad would do something like this and we wouldn't know what it meant, but worse, we wouldn't know what to do. And so now the question would be asked, have we entered the realm of the mother? Have we learned firsthand what it feels like to be her? And that was the first half dozen times that happened, for me at least, it was staggering. Not only did I not realize that I was reflecting the mother's own felt sense of helplessness, but I didn't understand that it could even work that way, that I could could feel a certain way myself and then then examine those feelings I was having for clues about what the mother or the father or even the baby, for that matter, was happening. Because we were all inclined to identify uh, with somebody or other, and sometimes it was the baby. Sometimes we were enraged at the mother. And it would dawn on us later that we were experiencing the the helplessness of the baby and did not know what to do and couldn't stand it and wanted to hurt somebody for it. Yes, and I'm also, as you're describing this, um, thinking about 
I'm sure a lot of this was done with questions for the students rather than giving the students answers. And, and that goes along with the whole thing that we've been talking about too, that it wasn't like something was just being served up to you and now you learn this and then regurgitate it. It was asking you the questions that, as you said early, caused you to stop in your tracks. Yes. And it taught me to um, way more than value questions. It taught me to honor the dignity um, and the penetrating nature of questions themselves. They're, that they're so far better than uh, statements, declarative statements. And they, they reflect properly the role of the therapist. Mm -hmm. The role of the therapist is not usually to make declarative statements. Mm -hmm. The therapist is to be uh, full of curiosity. You know, and I think, I think too, um, it's not that asking questions is something different. It's asking questions that really do cause this pause and this moment of discovery rather than just asking questions for the sake of getting the answer back from someone. You know, I remember in the child parent psychotherapy learning collaborative, you know, being on the phone for some of these discussions and we'd be sharing information and saying all of this. And then all of a sudden Patricia Van Horn would ask this question and and just everything went dead silent. <laughs> it, it was really something. Because um, we were chattering along about the case and, you know, the background and what we saw. And then she would suddenly ask that. And I remember thinking it was such a gift and a skill. It was a gift for us because it, it, it just stopped us. And we just, you had to think in a deeper way like you didn't have a choice you had to like it you couldn't be superficial with the question that she asked and you couldn't do any of the many things that you most of us are inclined to do to fill in the gap at the moment to chatter or to throw out six options or uh, it's it would be embarrassing you'd look like a fool so you'd be quiet yes their end brilliance would have a chance to to arise Oh, what a great statement, Michael. In quiet, brilliance has a chance to arise. And not just on my part, by the way, not on the clinician's part. It was always astonishing to hear what a mom or a dad would come up with if, if the stage was right and there was no chatter filling it. You mean that you all could shut up long enough for, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for that to happen? You know, I think a lot of clinicians today have difficulty not filling space. Yeah. By the way, since you ask about how, at least I think that's what you were getting at. How did we learn? Yes. How did we begin to pick up ideas that would eventually mold together to look something vaguely like a model? Yes. Uh, it occurs to me that not only did they teach us through through questions um, and through not giving answers and through letting us be impatient that they weren't giving us answers. They teach us in the relationships they were having with us. So I think I learned more about how to be a clinician 
from being in the presence of Bill Schaefer than I did anything he ever told me to do or anybody else ever told me to do. Mm -hmm. Not, that wasn't just his ability to be quiet. I remember that, um, oh my goodness, I don't recall the exact details, but I, I learned in the middle of this observation of the so-called well family, he had to make a trip north and would not be that far away. And we were considering whether he would ever come to a session as my supervisor, come to a home visit session. We decided against that, but decided maybe we could uh, get in a supervision session up north, not just in Ann Arbor. And all of that sounded very exciting to me. And so I blurted out something like, and so you could just stay with us. You could just, if you're going up north anyway, and you have to stay, you could just stay with us. And there was a long pause. And I, I don't recall the exact words he used, but I can recall their effect on me. He made clear that that would not happen. And he made me figure out why, and then ask. And in that way, I learned about boundaries. I learned about what is personal and what is professional or clinical. He would not stay in my house because it would violate a boundary, even though I wanted him to terribly. And we seemed friendly, but it wasn't that kind of friendly. He, he, mm. And I've absolutely never forgotten the feeling of that lesson. It gave me the, the um, sturdiness hundreds and hundreds of times over the next decades to know when to say yes and when to say no about boundaries, um, what it meant to practice in a, in a small rural community where everybody knew everybody, where this mom, I just, I keep mentioning my very first study case, learned in the newspaper that we were having our baby and, and she wanted to chat about it. Oh goodness, are you excited? Oh, you'll, I bet you'll be such a good daddy. I had to know what to do then. And, and Bill taught me by example, not by giving me an article to read about it. You know, that is a very interesting thing to bring up because um, I think uh, you may know this or may not, but the number one problem in humans, like if you would talk to a, a, our personnel director at Shadok or any human service, social service agency and say, what is the number one difficulty you have with employees that, that you're always having to, you know, talk with them about? It's not, you know, being late or not getting your paperwork done on time or it's boundaries. That is like always the number one issue. So it makes me realize you know that was such an important lesson and so important for you 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 knew how it felt and you could hold that with you when you needed to call upon it in other situations i love the way you put that you can learn about boundaries from somebody telling you about them or from reading a good clinical article but if you don't have the feeling of somebody drawing a boundary on you if you don't know what that really means, um, then 
you may be able to follow the lesson once or twice or even 10 times, but you'll be out there somewhere and you'll mess it up. You'll violate the boundary because you forgot what it felt, felt like. By the way, that particular instance, the, the mother blessed me with uh, further lessons about the matter of finding out in the local newspaper that we were having a baby. And I stammered about what, what to say to her. She went on to say that um, she thought I would probably be a very good daddy. Then she went on to say probably I'd be a better daddy than her husband was. Oh, wow. And that led to weeks and weeks of slow unraveling of a transference I had no idea had begun to form. Um, a, a positive transference, but with profound, terrifying, negative uh, features. Because it would turn out, I didn't learn this for probably six months after that event I just described. Yes. But she had been uh, molested in the room where we were doing our work uh, many years before, when she was about 12, by a stepfather. Oh. Uh, they had lived in that house when she was a kid, moved away, uh, and later when she got pregnant for the twins by this boy in the area, they acquired the house that she'd lived in when she was a little girl. And so unbeknownst to me, in this room, just inches away from where we're sitting at the table, at a daybed over there in the corner, uh, the stepfather molested her. And that's what was beginning to arise in her as she considered what kind of a daddy I might be. And as she noticed that she was feeding some very warm and tender things toward me, it terrified her. Wow. That's the next thing that I would obviously do, according to her narrative, is take her to the daybed. Wow, astonishing. None of that would I have known had I not been prepared for her asking me the question about my being a daddy and the article in the paper. Yes. I might've chatted too much and then I might've dismissed it. I might've known, I might not have known what to say when she said, I wonder if you're a better daddy than, and then her husband's name would be. Because mm -hmm. those are the critical junctures where the whole thing can be dismissed and just dribbled away and the transference never be learned about or where we can stay right with it, right with it, without violating the boundary, without my giving her too much information about me as a daddy or what kind of child we're expecting or who our doctor is or any of those things that she wanted me to tell her. I don't want to go there, but I don't want to drop it either. That's the delicate point. Yes. Yeah. So the point of all that was just to say, I continue to appreciate how they taught us what an intervention is. What are the rules? What's the shape of it? How do you do it? Yes. Yes. And I'm hoping over these um, several podcasts we'll have together, maybe we'll be able to get into some of those details yes absolutely um and you know 
I think uh, to wrap this up, and obviously you've alluded to this about yourself and the folks who are with in the in this project, but just what do you think compelled all of you in this early work? Oh my goodness. So much. I don't know that I can speak for all, though maybe I can because I'm guessing we had this in common that we all had an experience uh, where either somebody profoundly loved us or profoundly didn't. Mm -hmm. Or maybe our choice would be profoundly did and then we lost them. Mm -hmm. I think we probably all carried that into the classroom and that was the thing that meant either this was boring and uh, or innocuous or not meaningful to us or it was something we absolutely were riveted by i would never have said out loud oh this reminds me of my grandmother's stories about lying in with my mom or my uncle i would never have thought of it that way but i'm quite sure the hours i spent sitting with granny early in the morning when I was a very little boy, usually in the dark, with her Bible open at the kitchen table, uh, those hours where I learned not, not about anything called attachment or even mother love, but just learned from granny about love. And of course, learned what it felt like to be loved by her. Mm -hmm. I think probably for me, that was the thing that carried in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you, if you add that my own parents, had a hard time with that. They were very, very young. I was a big fat accident. And I think the contrast between what my grandmother gave me and what my parents gave me made Freiburg and all of her colleagues and all the things they were thinking about awfully, awfully interesting. Yeah. And now you've mentioned several times too that that you weren't using terminology like attachment and this sort of thing. Um, you made a point of, of specifically saying that. So um, that that just wasn't language being used at, at the time yet? Or, or what are your thoughts about that? We didn't have attachment theory. Uh, there had been some use of the word. Um, <clears throat> it's usually credited to Bowlby. Uh, but that would only be a half a dozen years before uh, we were in class. But I found it actually first used by Anna Freud just at the end of the war, Second War. So we had the word, but it was not in common parlance at all, and there was no theory about it. Nobody really understood even exactly what mother love was, much less attachment. Bobby would have suggested that it was uh, a, a natural phenomenon, but but he he studied animals, so of course he would think that. Um, mm -hmm. So nobody knew that it was delicate, that you could trip over it, uh, that it didn't happen at all sometimes, that it could happen and then be waylaid by events in the outside world, or by a characteristic, real or perceived of the baby um, or a hurt in the mother. 
or a pressure from the father to the mother that made its way to the baby. We had no idea about any of that. So I, th I think that was a gift, really. It, some might say it, it sounded like, it would sound like we were floundering, and I guess we probably were, but I think it's a gift to flounder. When you don't have language, you're, you're, you're um, relegated to just looking and wondering and trying to figure out a way to describe what you just saw without theory or without uh, framework. So it's like every home you went into, you were gathering data. Yep. And knowing that something would eventually come out of it, not knowing, what, what, what were you thinking? We're gathering data, but then of course we were immediately reporting the data. Yes. We were collecting it over a long period of time and storing it away somewhere. Right. We're reporting it and the act of reporting it itself was under scrutiny by our supervision. Uh, they, I, I learned the hard way that a good supervisor detects what the supervisee doesn't put in the notes as well as what the supervisee does put in the notes. So are there missing data? so to speak, becomes a scientific question very early on. Yes. Um, the development of the theory. And as then as we considered together uh, with someone, our supervisor that we, we've come to trust, um, we don't wonder right away what we could do about it. We just wonder what the dynamic is. And the idea was that when the dynamic is understood well enough, no one will have to say what you do about it. I mean, when, when that mom I just told you about finally revealed to me that her stepfather had molested her in the corner, there wasn't a, a written down strategy for what one does next. What one does next is sit slack-jawed with the mother, with empathy so evident on our faces, but not being pulled in to show sympathy or to wrap our arms metaphorically or literally around the mom. Uh, we must sit with that notion that, is, that a man who purports to be a caregiver, as this mom put it, a big guy who goes around helping people. Uh, that's what she thought her stepfather was, a big guy who, thought, who said he was going to help me. We have to then wonder, what, what big guys who go around helping people do you know? Do you know any others like that? Um, she invented all sorts of ways to avoid telling me that that was me. She, she told me about a long dream about Matt Dillon. The, the, From the Gunsmoke. On, on Gunsmoke? He said he, he was a big guy that went around helping people. But you <laughs> You better look out because he's dangerous, she said. And she, wow. And he was he was a big guy. I think he was like, I don't know, six five or more or something. Even bigger than I am. Yeah. Huh. He told me that he was dangerous by putting her hands on her hips as if to indicate his two gun his uh, guns. And and she she patted those and said, but he 
he can do bad things. He's very dangerous. Mm. Is it written down somewhere that the next question should be, do you know anybody else like that? A big guy that purports to help people, but he could be dangerous. No, that's not written down anywhere. We didn't have a theory about it. You just have to learn the hard way how to ask. Mm. And then how to stay with the result. I mean, when she finally says with a, with a grin on her face, well, I guess, I guess you're sort of like that, is the next word out of our mouth, but I would never do anything bad to you. No, of course it's not. Even that has to become a moment for, for quiet and musing together until it's finally possible for either for her to ask, you wouldn't, would you? or for me to put it out there. My way of putting it out there was clumsy. It's not brilliant at all. I just said, wow, I think I'm getting it. But we're gonna be awful busy. We have some very important work to do. So there won't be room for anything like that in our relationship or our work. Mm. Yeah. Way, years later, when I went back to find them, yes. one final film, that mother walked me out to the car. Uh, I was carrying my camera and tripod and everything. She walked me out to the car and she said, uh, do you remember when we got everything all straightened out? And not a word of explanation was needed. I said, oh. Oh. you knew the exact moment she was speaking of. Yes. Mm. And she needed to be reminded. Is it still like that? I can oh. count on at least one big guy who goes around helping people that knows how to stay in his place. Mm. Wow, that's a, that's a really lovely way to end this discussion. And such an important reminder not to jump in and ruin it. We, you know, I'm, I'm thinking when you said I didn't jump in immediately and say, oh, no, no, that, you know, that would never happen here. Um, it takes discipline and a willingness to listen and wonder and pace but the right way, instead of just impulsively, I suppose in that case, it would be impulsively protect yourself. All in the name of protecting her, but putting at risk whether I would then be believed. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine why she would believe me if I merely said, oh, I would never do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been a wonderful talk today. I look forward to our upcoming ones and um, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode is the second of a 12-part series with Michael Trout so be sure to tune in over the following weeks for additional episodes. 
If you haven't listened to episode one yet, you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.